2: Race to Value listeners, we are joined this week by Thompson Comey, the co-founder and CEO of Nice Healthcare. Thompson has the mindset that if it's broken, we have to fix it. And as industry leaders, we shouldn't wait for someone else to figure out how we're going to win a race to value. I mean, Thompson's a healthcare economist. He's an entrepreneur. He's someone that you should be listening to. With this company, Nice Healthcare, he's created a technology-enabled primary care clinic Without Walls, that delivers care in the comfort of the patient's home and it contracts directly with employers. And Thompson's built a company in response to the economic dysfunction and the lack of cost accountability that he's observed in our broken healthcare system. And In this episode, we're going to discuss why it's necessary to throw away the traditional economic principles in healthcare and really reshape our industry for the future.
1: Listeners, I can guarantee you this is going to be a fantastic conversation. You're going to enjoy listening to Thompson like we did, and I look forward to hearing the thoughts and questions that follow. You're going to like this week's episode with one of
2: the leading minds in healthcare and in our healthcare economy. If you like what you hear, please check out future episodes. And the best way to do that is to go to value.org forward slash newsletter to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you don't miss a beat. And also, we'd love to get your feedback. Uh, Go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review and a a rating if you're so inclined. And and now let's hear from Thompson Comey as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Thompson, welcome to the Race to Value. It's just so amazing to be with you today. I can't wait to get into our conversation and learn about the great work that you're doing to transform healthcare.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, Thompson, as we begin our conversation today, I would love to learn more about your personal story and experiences with our broken healthcare system. As a professional, you began your career as a statistician and a health economist, and that work experience, along with a passion to fix healthcare through consumer-centric innovation and cost accountability, led you to a more progressive and disruptive career as a healthcare executive and a serial entrepreneur. In 2017, you co-founded Nice Healthcare an on-demand, in-home technology-enabled clinic that delivers comprehensive healthcare to employees of small and medium-sized businesses. And we'll go more in depth on the NICE healthcare model in a bit, but I first wanted to understand your inspiration for starting a company with a mission to cut through the complexity of healthcare delivery by providing care that's easy and affordable. And as I understand, it all had to do with the personal experience you had navigating the healthcare system back in 2011. And your one-year-old son was sick, your family had a horrendous experience with the healthcare system, and you saw firsthand the economic dysfunction and the poor quality that was delivered. Can you walk us through this experience with your son and how that shaped your entrepreneurial vision to start the company? And, and what have you learned in the years since that gives you hope that consumer-centric innovation can lead us down a better path for American healthcare in the future?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. My son is 12 years old today. I just turned 12 last December. He's happy and healthy, you know, but back in 2011, he was not when he was one year old. Um, I was just wrapping up business school. Um, My wife was working, you know, to provide for the family. And my son came down with a fever and the fevers for us were, were kind of traumatic because he suffered from febrile seizures you know, where he would basically to our eyes look like he was dead. I remember the first time it happened, I was just terrified you know, that all of a sudden, here's my son lying here limp. So we treated fevers very seriously, but we're, my wife and I both work in healthcare. So we called the nurse line like you're supposed to do. We didn't rush to the urgent care. We didn't rush to the ER. That's what the healthcare system has been pounding into our heads as consumers Mm -hmm. for decades is to call the nurse line. So we did. And the nurse on the nurse line sent us to our local clinic. We went to the clinic Naturally, we were unable to see his pediatrician that had seen him multiple times before, so we saw another doctor, and I'm sure the doctor was fine. But what they did is they diagnosed him with a virus and told us to go home that he'd get better in a couple days. And for us, he didn't get better, and we weren't just going to sit around with these fevers spiking day in and day out, sleepless nights, first-time parents with a one-year-old. So we went back to the clinic a second time. Same thing happened a third time, and it was a day much like today in my home state of Minnesota and Minneapolis freezing cold, three feet of snow on the ground, slippery roads and ice. We were fortunate enough to have a car that we could drive there every single time. And it was on this fourth visit and my wife and I went every single time. We are both very vested in our son's care. On this fourth visit, our son finally is diagnosed with pneumonia. He gets diagnosed with pneumonia. He gets a $5 antibiotic prescribed to him and he's better in 24 hours. But we sat there, my wife and I, in this fourth visit, and I told my wife, I am want to look around. Like, why do we keep coming back to this building? Like, we're, we're seeing the same people, the same staff, you know, the same nurses. And they keep telling us to come back without any regards to our experience as consumers. And so I gave myself a self-guided tour <laughs> of this clinic. I didn't ask for permission. And I walked around this clinic. And the clinic's actually not too far from where I live right now, just, a few, just about a mile away. And I walked around this clinic opening doors, looking in drawers. I walked into some empty exam rooms. And I pulled out my phone and I started Googling like, well, how much does an otoscope cost? Like how much does that ugly table in the corner with the paper on it cost? Like how much does a blood pressure cuff cost? And I just started Googling this stuff. And I, how much does an x-ray machine cost? And what I found surprised me that these things were actually pretty affordable. And I Google, okay, what does the salary for for a doctor cost? You know, what's my practice insurance? And then I did all of this in a matter of five, 15 minutes. And I went back to my wife and I said, Hannah, I could start my own clinic. I could start a clinic today and I could run it better than these people who've been doing it for hundred years. Our eyes closed and my arms tied behind my back. And then to wrap the story up, we a month later, we get a bill for $664,028. And, he, and that, was just a, that, that just added insult to injury. After a horrific experience with our son, we get this bill. And we were asking ourselves, well, what if we couldn't afford these visits? What if we didn't go back the second time, the third time, or the fourth time? Like, what would have happened to our son? What would have happened to our family? What if we didn't have a car to drive in the middle of winter every single time? What if we would have had to take off work from an hourly job? All these thoughts are running through my head, and they all they did was highlight for me the brokenness of our system. I was fortunate in this situation. I had privilege to be able to engage in the health of my son with my wife and pay for the business, but not everybody has that. And that was the inspiration behind my healthcare. I decided to start a company that would basically eliminate that experience for myself and anybody else that didn't want to experience it also.
1: Thompson, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I'm sorry you had to live through that and experience such a, a traumatic uh, event in your life for your family. But uh, I'm really grateful for your response and how you've you've taken that to uh, improve healthcare for so many more people. And, as you've talked about healthcare in the past and how it should work for patients, I've heard you say that if there is just one problem with healthcare, it's the price. And that harkens back to a famous article written by the late health economist, Juve Reinhardt and his colleagues, It's the Price is Stupid, where he argues that high prices explain why the why most of the U.S. healthcare costs are so much higher than those in other advanced countries. And of course, we also have the issues associated with service intensity that contribute to poor cost and clinical outcomes. However, it's hard to separate service intensity from price. In fee-for-service healthcare, we have this asymmetry between the supplier and the consumer that allows a physician or the supplier to also serve the economic role as a consumer by generating their own demand. And what drives this economic dislocation are the structural flaws of the broken healthcare system that create perverse financial incentives that actually reward excess profiteering and consumer fleecing. And at NICE Healthcare, you're exemplifying a vision for how healthcare with your son should have been. And the company offers a tech-enabled clinic with same-day home visits, but it's also ensuring that there shouldn't be a financial barrier for everyday healthcare your model is fully capitated, no fee for service whatsoever, which allows you to offer unlimited virtual care and home visits, along with lab tests, drugs, x-rays, EKGs, et cetera, conducted in the home. Can you expound on the premise of why the pricing of healthcare is our biggest problem? and, And how is NICE Healthcare creating a more idealized way that leverages cost accountability with consumer experience and patient outcomes?
0: Absolutely. The problem with healthcare is the price. I've been saying this for 20 years, and much to my dismay, the media, the press, healthcare policy wonks, they want to talk about everything under the sun except the price of healthcare, the unit price. And this is, this is my premise. Why should we care how much people use a good or service, right? Like in, in any other industry, if someone wants to use more of your service, you're happy. My wife is a business owner. She wants people to use her service all the time. I own a few other businesses. I want people to use services all the time. But yet we find in healthcare that we're oftentimes hearing the people that have the pulpits anyways, talk about intensity. They're always talking about intensity. How do you reduce utilization? How do you reduce urgent care use? How do you reduce emergency care use instead of how do we reduce the unit price? Because if we could reduce the unit price of the care, well, then we wouldn't have to care, <laughs> pun intended, how much people use healthcare. So that's, so that's the reason I focus on the price, but then why? Why is the price the problem? For me, you have to go back to economic basic principles to understand this. You have, in healthcare, you have a good that is not normal. It's a good that no matter what you wanna buy it, it's like water in a desert. If you're dying of thirst in a the desert, there's no price to water that would prevent you from keeping yourself alive by buying that bottle of aquafina you'll pay whatever you'll pay whatever to stay alive that's healthcare basically healthcare is trying to avoid pain and to stay alive that's what we're trying to do so if you have a good that fundamentally there's no limit to the press then it's foolish to think that you could place that good in a quote unquote free market and expect anything but the price to approach infinity like that's what's going to happen because that's what a free market would do because that brings me to my second point so first of all you have a good that there's no limit to the price there's no limit to what anyone would pay to avoid pain and stay alive if they had the money which is a, a critical point if they had the money now put that in our current construct of capitalism now well the point of a corporation is to maximize profit. And the way corporations maximize profit is by maximizing market share. That is the traditional way to maximize profit. In any other industry, what you do is you make your product or service better, maybe you make the price lower in an effort to take market share from your competitors to grow your top line revenue, which then grows your profit. But now imagine you take one of these companies within capitalism, and you give them a product or service for which you can increase the price infinitely and your demand stays the same in the worst case scenario. In some cases, it actually goes up. Well, then now you've removed the incentive to capture market share. You've removed the incentive to grow by traditional means of other businesses because instead you'll just increase your price if you want your profit to go up because it's just easy. So again, just to rehash it, The reason we have a problem with healthcare prices today is because we have a good with an infinite level to which we would increase the price. We're talking price elasticity of demand, but we don't need to get technical here. And now we've given that good or service to an entity whose sole purpose is to maximize profit, either by gaining in market share or increasing prices. But because there's no limit to price increases, these firms that are operating within the healthcare system choose to increase prices infinitely. And we, the consumers, because we want to avoid pain or death, choose to continue paying more and more. And unless you create a new business model that completely changes that dynamic, the problem with healthcare will always remain the price. I don't care what you want to call it. I don't care what government program it is. I don't care if you're a direct contracting entity, Medicare Advantage, I don't care if you're building virtual clinics. I don't care if you're building physical clinics. If you don't change the business model, you're not going to change the price. So Nice Healthcare from the get-go set out to do two things, to change that patient experience to make it different than what my son and I and my wife experienced all these years ago. And the second thing was to change the business model of healthcare so that financially we were aligned with whoever was paying and receiving the care. So the way we did that is we said, look, there's, there's about 70%, 80% of healthcare that everybody needs. Like in general, everybody needs it. We had a study done and the actual number comes out to 89%. So we said, there's a suite of services within the healthcare industry that 89% of the population in any population uses every year. And right now, because of the way we've constructed our healthcare system, this everyday care is being paid out of pocket by the majority of consumers. But because we have these runaway prices, as I just explained, people are avoiding care. People are putting off care. People are getting the wrong care sometimes. So what NICE Healthcare does, is we said, okay, let's take this suite of services that this 89 percent of people need, and let's remove the cost equation from the decision to get care. Let's, let's put the focus on the care, and then let's capitate that rate. Now, I'm bringing back an old word. There's nothing new about capitation at all. But this is this is where it gets interesting. The suite of services that NICE Healthcare provides, our members can use as much as they want, absolutely as much as they want. And so let's imagine a payer, a health insurance company, is paying this capitated rate. Well, now we have an aligned incentive where they want their members to use our service to produce downstream savings and to divert claims to invest in their everyday health We as NICE Healthcare want people to use our service because we want more and more members so that we get more and more clients. And so now our incentives are aligned. And then the next step after that is NICE Healthcare is now entering into at-risk models with payers, where we're saying, look, we'll take this 89% of care. On average, it comes to about $60 PEPM. Let's make sure everybody in this country doesn't have to think twice about getting everyday care. And that everyday care for us is defined as primary care, mental health, and physical therapy. Let's make sure people can get that. That is the best first step that we can do. And we'll take on that risk and manage that care at a lower price point. And our business model allows us to operate at a lower price point. For example, and then I'll I'll kind of get off my soapbox here. For example, we offer 550 prescription drugs for free to our members, but we don't take any rebates at all from the pharmaceutical industry, none. We've negotiated the lowest rates possible with a PBM, and we said, just give us these drugs at a very low price so that we can give them to our members for free. Labs and tests. We don't mark up labs and tests. Labs and tests are, and x-rays are marked up 100 200 or 1, 1,000% within network providers. We don't do any markup at all on our labs and tests. Again, we're passing this on to our members for free. We heavily use virtual care. We have home visits instead of physical clinics that further drive down our costs. We use nurse practitioners and PAs instead of MDs because they can provide all the same services that an MD does at a lower price point. When you add all this together with our technology and processes, it allows us to operate at a lower unit price point that then we pass on to the consumers of care instead of marking up like the rest of the healthcare system.
2: Well, Thompson, as you're discussing, you know, this transformative business model, I can't help but think about a prior podcast episode that we had with Dr. Farzad Mostashari, the CEO of Validate. And on that show, he used a metaphor to explain healthcare pricing and the unchecked financial incentives that we had. And it was Niagara Falls. So hear me out here. So. With Niagara Falls, you have a torrent of water that's going over the crest of the falls every minute, that's 6 million cubic feet. And you can equate that to healthcare spending since our country spends $6 million per minute on healthcare, and the flow of funding is specifically in tune with sickness and not health. Um, And in this broken fee-for-service system that we have, we have everyone waiting at the bottom of the falls with a bucket, just trying to catch the poor, sick patients that are coming over. And since the broken healthcare system is exquisitely tuned to react after patients get sick, the money's not made until we fail those patients. I mean, we actually fail these patients, they fall through the cracks. They have, let's say, an exacerbation in in their chronic disease. They go over that waterfall. Then we're delivering subpar care, and we're not going upstream and managing the preventable and the the unmanaged chronic disease proactively. And then value-based care. You know what we're trying to do is to catch patients before they go over that waterfall, metaphorically. And in this movement to value, as I think about it, it seems that the new players, you know, innovators and disruptors like yourself. They're going to be the ones that are going to be in the best position to be at the headwaters in this new model because they're going to be more nimble and agile and unconflicted. Thompson, can you explain why it has to be the upstart innovators and the new companies that change healthcare at the headwaters? And are the economic incentives in the current model just too entrenched to overcome for most legacy incumbents trying to go upstream from the bottom of the falls?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I consider it heretical in healthcare circle because I don't, I don't agree necessarily with all of the, you know, the voices that are usually heard, you know, because I actually don't agree with that analogy, you know, but I do agree with the conclusion uh, that it's the innovators that are going to pull this off. So, and, so the reason is this, and I'll kind of weave in why I disagree with it, if I may, if I may be so bold, is, the, yes, the incentives are too strong because, again, let's boil it down to the basics. You have firms that are for profit. Their fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders, to increase share price, share value. How do you do that? You increase profit, you increase cash flow. So therefore, it would violate the very purpose of these entities to do anything, to do anything that would intentionally reduce shareholder value, whether that's over a quarter or over a year. So just fundamentally, the the very notion that a for-profit entity would would deliberately engage in activity that would lower its revenue or profit is ludicrous because think about it if 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 value-based care is really creating value then if we take that Niagara Falls example instead of 6 million dollars a minute it should be 1 million dollars a minute well if you go from 6 million to 1 million a minute well someone's not making revenue somewhere in the system. Someone's not generating profit. So anyone who's already there has no benefit and will not benefit from making that drop from six to $1 million a minute. In fact, they would actually want it to go from six to 10 million. But then what they do is they create this fantasy world of value-based care. And they say, oh, we're gonna do value-based care. But all they're doing is redistributing. It's still flowing at $6 million a minute. But they, they're just saying, oh, instead of cashing in this bucket, I'm going to cash it over here in this bucket. That, that is fundamental of value-based care. Because unless value-based care can intentionally reduce revenue and profit, then it's, it's not value-based care. Another thing that I like to say is, if no one's going out of business, if none of the incumbent players are going bankrupt, it's not value-based care. Like Don't, don't even talk to me about that. I get so frustrated and so angry at these people promulgating what I consider lies you know, and misinformation. Because the, the ultimate result of true value-based care should be bankruptcy of legacy companies. It should be shareholder value being destroyed. And you know what would happen? In other parts of the economy, we would see shareholder value being created because shareholder value is being destroyed in healthcare. You see higher wages you see more innovation, you see higher profits at non-healthcare companies and shareholders would then gravitate in the market towards non-healthcare companies. And eventually what should happen is investing in healthcare companies should be the most unattractive proposition for any investor. Ultimately, that's what should happen. So when I hear, when, but when people talk about value-based care, they are not describing a world that I just described. They're describing, again, some unicorn fantasy where you redistribute care and you've now convinced everybody that you're doing good for society because you're now paying people differently or getting paid differently. But, still, but now all of a sudden, instead of $6 million a minute, now the waterfall is flowing at $7 million a minute. It's, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. And I could go on and on about it. So a new innovator, let's stick with this waterfall example, and I'll continue to play in the value-based care space. A new innovator can create a business model where if you slow that waterfall from $6 million a minute to $1 million a minute, they are still profitable. They are still growing. They can create shareholder value. And if they're not a for-profit entity, if they're a government entity or nonprofit, they can create community value at $1 million a minute. So so that's the thing. if a new, I define a new entrant as an entity that can create more shareholder value as a for-profit entity at lower levels of revenue, much lower values of revenue. And I'm not just talking about technology companies. If you're not doing that, you're a false innovator. Like, and another thing I like to point out to people, if an innovator enters the healthcare space and they grow rapidly, just they grow just by some intense speed that is normally equated with other industries and technology startups. By definition, they're most likely not an innovator. Most likely they're just riding the current of that $6 million a minute because a real innovator would be riding it at $1 million a minute. That is slow. That is much slower than the current speed. So one of the hallmarks of a true healthcare innovator is they actually grow slower than the false innovators, and therefore, we miss them. That's not who the media talks about. That's not who investors invest in. That's not who we think is successful, because unfortunately, in our society, they find success by growing fast and growing big. But innovators by in healthcare, by their very virtue, do not grow very fast, and it takes them a while to become big, because they have to create shareholder value on a much slower, smaller stream of revenues to truly create value for people in the healthcare space.
2: You know Thompson, as you're describing, you know this this opportunity for innovation in healthcare and really addressing the unit economics and the high pricing model that we have. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And it reminds me of what uh, Clayton Christensen wrote about in the Innovator's Dilemma. He's talking about how you know, we've got this great opportunity for innovation and some of the opportunities there for some of these upstart companies is to address a lot of that, the wasteful spending as well in conjunction with the pricing. And, you know, there's been an estimation that there's $765 billion that's wasted in healthcare every year because of the inefficient way that we deliver services. And, you know, the Institute of Medicine says that, you know, 20% of patients' test results or medical records are not transferred in time. We have 50% of adults with issues uh, that, that you know facing care coordination and communication. I mean, there's, there's a Byzantine maze of complexity. Patients don't understand how to navigate the system. I mean, to your point earlier with your son, had you not had the resources to go a third and fourth time, you never would have truly got to the answer that light at the end of the tunnel and getting into the root cause of what is actually happening. And I, I just can't help but think the innovator's dilemma, as Christensen you know coined it, is this great opportunity to create this new ecosystem where there is information sharing, and there is like an improved level of literacy and and engagement with patients. and And ultimately, you know keeping it simple you know i think we've had this monstrosity of healthcare that we've created that's been born out of this this jacked up broken fee for service model can you speak a little bit about just as a as an innovator how you're looking to to make you know healthcare a little bit easier to navigate and and through that in conjunction with the the pricing and some of the efficiencies gained and you know using tech enablement you know how do we get to a better solution for american healthcare
0: Yeah, absolutely. The first thing I'll say is making things simple doesn't start with technology. Technology can make the simplicity elegant. It can make the simplicity even more simple and lower cost. But it first starts without any technology whatsoever. And at NICE Healthcare from day one, this has been built in. It's one of our core values as a company is simplicity. That's why our solution encompasses mental health, primary care, and physical therapy and includes the labs and tests and x-rays and drugs. Because to make it simple, we need to create a place where patients could come and they could basically get almost any healthcare service that they might need that's not provided by a hospital or a specialist. Cause they don't have to they don't have to think of where to go. They don't have to think of what to do. We have live care coordinators that can be reached in four minutes or less. And these live care coordinators are like overwatch over our entire system at nice healthcare, our clinical practice nationwide. And they're helping patients in real time, a real person. It's not a bot, it's not AI, you know, it's not a nurse line. It's someone that actually understands what we're doing. Since we don't do fee-for-service, we don't have claims, we don't have CPT codes, we don't have any of that stuff, we don't accept third-party reimbursement, we don't accept Medicare or Medicaid, so that just makes it simple. Our patients can just open up our app and start talking to a real person, and then if needed, we come to their house to do x-rays or labs. Making that patient experience that simple is what drives our utilization engagement rates. Our utilization and engagement rates are significantly higher than other healthcare innovators, A, because it's simple. And B, we brought this suite of services together instead of being a point solution. You know, there's a lot of healthcare innovators right now and they're launching their services and they're targeting a very specific group or a very specific condition or a very specific this or that. You know what? Nice healthcare is for everybody. Like it doesn't matter what your gender is. doesn't matter what your income level is. doesn't matter what your health condition is. It doesn't matter anything. Nice healthcare is always the place to start where you're going to be able to get 80 to 90% of the care that you need done and not have to pay anything because we've also made a financial part simple by having a price point that leverages our low internal unit cost to pass on great prices to our customers who ultimately are payers and employers.
1: Thompson, I'm listening to your explanation of all this and I'm thinking there are a lot of people that are going to be Uh, raising their eyebrows and and thinking new ideas and having some paradigm shifts. And uh, you really make a great case for the need for innovative disruption by these new players. And we're seeing a surge, as you've talked about, of venture capital and private equity investment going into virtual care and high-touch primary care models. I can't help but think about how this shifting power dynamic will reshape healthcare economics within a completely reimagined health ecosystem. And as care becomes more virtualized and procedures shift more and more into ambulatory settings and and hospitals become asset light, we'll see new dominant market players hosting these asset light care delivery models. And, And currently we see the lion's share of U.S. medical spending going to low value hospital care. And hospitals are definitely on top of the food chain in this medical industrial complex that we've created. But that era will likely end. And we need them, of course, to provide higher levels of emergency medical and surgical care with capacity weighted toward more intensive patient management. But I can see how this emerging paradigm of virtual and home-based asset-like care delivery supported by a network of connected and expanded ambulatory resources could redefine the rules of the game. In this advent of technology-enabled ambulatory care and consumerism, how do you see the role of the hospital changing? where it's no longer at the pinnacle of care, but instead it's a provider on a continuum? And how will companies like NICE Healthcare create a new standard for value-based cost-accountable care in that marketplace?
0: That's a great question. You know, and I I'm, so I'm not, I really wanna dig into that. So again, if I may be so bold, a lot of people aren't gonna agree with me here, uh, but time will tell, you know, what's the right approach. Hospitals should not be for problems. Hospitals, in my opinion, shouldn't even be private organizations, because can you imagine if every single household had their own police force and fire department? You know, if every single household funded those activities by themselves, they don't don't need the police. They don't need a personal police every day. They don't need a personal fire department every day, you know, but they just have their own. And, And so just lying down the street, everybody has one. That's, that's basically what we've done with hospitals. You know, there, there, if a hospital is very similar to that type of function. It's something that you need in an emergency. It's something that you need for very complex situations. It's something that you hope you never have to interact with. It's something that you want to be available whenever you do need to interact with it. And you should be able to interact with it no matter what your income is, no matter where you live, no matter what your situation is. You start putting all those descriptors together you, you don't it doesn't really sound like a for profit entity it sounds more like a utility you know at the very least a utility you know if not actually a public good a public service so for me i think that as we as a species as a society evolve we're going to realize that there's certain types of care that really should be treated like a public good or a utility and it needs to be made available to everybody and it needs to be there for everybody no matter who they are and once you remove the profit motives from that environment now you can start actually have innovators come in to change the way that's provided because then now all of a sudden the entity that is responsible for this hospital which is a public good they really do want to lower the unit price of care they're not trying to grow their top line they're not trying to build more buildings just for the sake of building buildings with marble and fancy tiles you know, So that's the, that to me, that's the only way to create alignment because, again, a hospital is the most extreme version of what I described at the beginning of this podcast, a good or service that you will pay anything because you don't want to die or you don't want to be in pain, or maybe even worse, you don't want someone you love to die or be in pain. There's nothing that you wouldn't do to pay for it. This should not be something that's subjected to the free market and profit motives and shareholders, and quarterly earnings, and things of that nature, nor to some of the mismanagement that occurs in the non-for-profit sector. Whereas when you look at the everyday care, when you look at the everyday care that NICE Healthcare provides, that in the everyday care is where you have the average American household struggling to pay it. Because if the average visit with a lab or x-ray is two or $300 in a clinic, that is a big financial hit to most families. For something that should be as easy to get as air or water, they have to struggle and think about what is the financial impact to my family's budget this month. That is where free market principles, that is where competition, true innovation as I described it, not in the way that we usually think about it or read about it. That's where that type of innovation will come into play. And then you have those two systems sitting side by side in my future for healthcare where you have innovators that have driven the unit cost so low for everyday care that it's actually affordable and you don't need insurance to buy it. Why would you, I mean, we don't use insurance to buy apples. We don't use insurance to buy tennis shoes. Like everyday care should be the same thing. But for the type of care that's incredibly complex and expensive and you need it there, but you hope you never have to use it. And you may never actually use it in your life. That should be operated as a utility. And then when it's operated as the a utility, there will be incentive for innovators to enter and help those utilities operate at the lowest price point possible.
2: Hey, Thompson, you know, as I'm thinking about this industry transformation that has to take place, I mean, we have to recognize that, you know, it's moving at a glacial pace right now. I mean, we're trying to we're make this seismic shift. It's 20% of our economy right now. It's just ridiculous. I mean, $4 trillion dollars. Uh, more than twice per capita we spend, you know, in this country compared to the number two country in the world in healthcare costs and you know there's a lot of bets now that are taking place as to, you know, who's going to be the dominant force to shape up the to shake up the market. Is it going to be the federal government through these mandated risk-based payment models? Is it going to be a corporate mega giant conglomerate like Amazon and One Medical? Is or is it going to be employers? And I'm of the mindset that it's going to be employers who are fed up with the current system. I mean, employers are now demanding that we do things differently with regard to healthcare spending, and they're no longer willing to have the provision of insurance drag their business down, especially when employees aren't actually living more healthier and they're not more productive um, as a result. And even though these employers wield a lot of power, you know, they feel powerless because these employer-sponsored health insurance plans, I mean, they've gone up 54% in the last decade. And you know, the poor health of employees, I mean, it's costing employers $530 billion on top of the $880 billion they already spend in premium dollars. I mean, it's just ginormous if you if you think about it. And when you look at the fleecing of employers as well, I mean, they're, what's been going on is that, you know, these hospitals are relying on commercial insurance to subsidize losses that they're receiving on the public pay side, like Medicare and Medicaid. And I'm just wondering how long that can continue to be the modus operandi. Whereas employers have been able to accept that health spending is the cost of doing business, I mean, they can't continue to be in this situation where they're struggling during an economic downturn and healthcare costs are the number two item, you know, on their on their PL outside of, you know, salaries and compensation. So, you know, Thompson, can you help walk us through like what's happening in the employer landscape right now and in also in the years to come? Are we gonna see that employers? are going to be these sleeping giants that awaken, you know, to force the change that's going to be needed in our healthcare system, you know, in partnership with these innovative uh, healthcare operators and, and how is partnership with companies like yours going to provide employers with a viable solution for their future healthcare strategy?
0: Yeah, here's the thing. We cannot divorce, let's just call it Medicare for public programs. We, We can't divorce Medicare from commercial, which is the common phrase used to refer to employer-sponsored health care. These two things are intricately le- linked together, and I want to just briefly describe how they're linked and then use that to demonstrate why I believe the future for employers looks a certain way. So let's look at it. The majority of funding for Medicare comes from two sources, Three sources, excuse me, three sources. One is the Medicare premiums that the Medicare enrollees pay. That that's a small chunk, you know, it's, it's a smaller chunk. The bigger chunk, and I've done an analysis, but I want to I don't want to use the actual numbers because it was kind of muddy the discussion. The bigger chunk of funding for Medicare and Medicaid comes from payroll taxes in the form of the Medicare tax, which has no cap. It's a two point nine percent if you combine the employee portion, employer portion. And then there's a portion of the income tax that actually is going to from the Medicare fund. So right now, you have employees are paying a very large percentage of their income to fund Medicare. Now, think about this. You have the Fed that's on a mission to loosen the the labor market. They want unemployment to go up. They want wages to go down. Well, if wages go down, that means tax revenue goes down. If tax revenue goes down, that means funding to Medicare goes down. If unemployment goes up, that's fewer people earning a W-2 income. Well, if there's fewer people earning income, tax revenues go down again, and that means funding to Medicare goes down. And then you throw in the cost subsidization. So look at the cost of healthcare. The cost of healthcare, as you just pointed out, has increased tremendously over the last you know decades, multiple decades. Well. Healthcare benefits are not taxable income; they're pre-tax. So, what's happening is as healthcare costs for employers go up, tax revenue to the federal government is going down. And then, what that means is that funding to Medicare is going down. So, you have multiple forces at play, right? Stagnating wages, rising health insurance costs, um, unemployment being high, wages going down when they do. All of these things plus cross subsidization, is hurting Medicare. So any solution that we want for Medicare has to involve the commercial population, like carte blanche. Like, I don't care what you're doing. If you're, if you're just doing Medicare, you're basically just depending on employees to continue funding your innovation, which they can't do because eventually the system's gonna break which brings us to woe up the role of the employer in the future. Unfortunately, I believe that in order for employers to shake themselves free of the shackles of the healthcare system that's hurting families, hurting businesses, hurting our economy, hurting our environment, in order for them to be free, the federal government is gonna have to wake up to the fact that the healthcare industry is making it impossible to fund Medicare. Once we have the right people in place that recognize that, that all this innovation that CMS is doing will not compare at all to the amount of revenue that's being lost to Medicare through these things I just described. The federal government has to fix that. And one of the the most basic ways the federal government could do that is related to the idea I just described, which is where you make the most expensive, the most rare, the most complex care that we all want available when we need it, but hope we never need it, that type of care should be provided by the government. It, it just should. It will make things so much simpler. Look at insurance. The, the The way you reduce risk in a pool is to have a bigger pool. Well, the biggest pool is everybody. So that by definition, mathematically, the lowest risk pool is a pool with everybody in it for these high risk, highly volatile, things that we call hospital care, specialty care, surgery, things of that nature. So if employers no longer had to pay for that, then employers would be free to participate with true innovation for the everyday care that shouldn't be paid for by the government, that shouldn't be paid for you know, by an employer if, if they have to. It shouldn't be paid for through insurance. That is the key. But unless we free employers from funding Medicare by harming their own employees. <laughs> like the only way you fund Medicare, you know, is by harming employees. Like they're just tied together. Employer, employers have to be free from that paradigm. And anyone that says otherwise, I would love to hear the argument, you know, but I'm just a realist, honestly. And I just don't it's just not feasible in the current setup for employers to really affect any change. Now, you might be asking, well, but Thompson, you're an entrepreneur, you're an innovator, you're doing all this stuff. Well, yeah, I am, like, totally, you know, but I believe that I'm changing the lives of my customers fundamentally. The experience of my customers, the experience of getting care, the economics of how care works for my customers is very different than the rest of the healthcare system. But to get it into the entire economy would require a systemic and policy-level shift and how we do things that would then free up the free market to do true innovation. And then, last but not least, there's other policies. One of the problems with healthcare is barriers to entry. One of, the, one of the core signs of a failing market is when barriers to entry are so high that new entrants can't enter. Only the federal government, and in some cases state government, has the power to reduce the barriers to entry. We should have national licensing for clinicians. You should get licensed in at in one place and that license works in all 50 states like just that simple move would change things telehealth laws need to be revamped and modernized you know these are, these are very simple things um medical school you want to lower the cost of you know the input cost for healthcare? well don't have doctors graduating with a half a million dollars in debt <laughs> you know right there you can't You can't have someone have a half million dollars in debt and then not pay them enough to cover that debt once they graduate you know so there's all these things that quite frankly innovators cannot affect but if we could actually make these systemic changes it would lower barriers to entry that would allow innovators and employers to innovate together in a much more effective way that could systemically change the system
1: thompson i want to dig deeper into the patient side of things you talked about your customers and your patients and you know we've we've been exploring this economic dysfunction in the healthcare system and you've spoken really elo- eloquently about it and it's obvious we have a flawed pricing structure it defies normal market dynamics of supply and demand within a capitalist economy we've also got this inelasticity of demand where patients, as you say, they're willing to pay anything in a life or death emergency. And of course, in these situations, the system is heavily favored and and more than willing to take advantage of patients by delivering low value, unnecessary, and sometimes even harmful care. And this elasticity of demand, when you think about it, where prices are going up in correlation to supply going up, it's why healthcare is is the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in our country. And this is so tragic that the healthcare economic model it, it really has to change to better serve society. Healthcare, as you're describing, should be a right instead of a privilege. And this is a moral imperative for us to fix and patients should be forcing the industry to move to be more innovative and cost accountable. However, we see that healthcare is such a heavily regulated, massively subsidized industry full of structural distortions that consumerism doesn't seem to drive change like in other industries. And the other challenge is blocking a much-needed wave of patient consumerism is the information asymmetry between patients and providers. You see poor health literacy and flawed Americanized conditioning that we have the best healthcare system in the world, and it leads to this uh, this significant asymmetry. So, Thompson, as we're seeing patient expectations for care delivery becoming a more formidable agent of change, will we see their demands impact the future transformation of industry. And I'd love to hear more about how is NICE Healthcare responding to this patient-centered movement to consumerism? And, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about what your patients are saying and about their experience and being more convenient and responsive as far as care delivery.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. You know, and will, will patients start demanding more? Will consumers start demanding more? We've, if we look at other industries, you know, we certainly see that when Amazon rolled out two-day shipping, then other companies, other firms had to start doing two-day shipping. You know, when one restaurant on your in your neighborhood starts doing delivery, well, then the other restaurants have to start doing delivery. And sometimes it works in the negative, right? If If one restaurant starts automatically charging a service fee, to pay for healthcare, ironically, given this discussion, we've all seen it in restaurants where now there's a service fee on top of the price, on top of the tip. Like once one restaurant does that because healthcare costs are skyrocketing, well then the other restaurants are now emboldened to do that and consumers kind of accept like that is the way things are done. And I am more pessimistic on this than others. And that's why I use that example of the restaurant as a kind of an inverse. Because a lot of times people like to use the positive two-day shipping and food delivery and all this kind of stuff. Well, but sometimes consumers accept things going the opposite direction that they would want. And because they don't feel like they have the agency or the ability to make any change or they don't have any options, they don't do anything. And that's kind of the case with healthcare. Because if you have a favorite restaurant that makes something you really like, And now they add a 15% fee on top of their price on top of the tip. Well, what are you going to do is stop eating at your favorite restaurant. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe, maybe if you can't afford it, you might have to from a budgetary standpoint, but supposing you can't afford it or maybe you can make cuts other elsewhere in your budget. You're going to pay the 50% fee. We've, we've, we've all done it. Certainly the listeners to this podcast, that's the same thing with healthcare. Unfortunately, I, consumers are not going to be the cure-all. Consumer demands are not going to change healthcare. If that was the case, it would have already happened by now, is my belief. And the example of the restaurant adding a service fee is a prime example of what happens when you have a good or service for which there are few, if any, substitutes, you know, and you really want it. And in this case, it's not even because it's tasty and delicious, like your favorite hamburger. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you're talking life or death or just your comfort by avoiding pain. Of course, you're going to accept whatever the industry does to you. So I, I just don't believe in this idea of consumers being a panacea and leading the change uh, to healthcare. So that's again where we bring in what we are doing in Nice Healthcare. Of course, And Nice Healthcare, what we've done is we've created an experience. That has changed our patient's perspective of healthcare. Let me do something for you, just because you asked. I'm going to just pull up on my phone real quick. I'm going to go to Google Maps. And I'm going to Google in Google Maps, NICE Healthcare. And what comes up is, you know, our NICE Healthcare page. And we have a perfect five-star review, 325 reviews. Now, if I if I take our data internally, we have tens of thousands of these five stars, but these are the people that actually took the time to come to Google and to um, express how much they liked it. And if I Google in Google maps any other local healthcare provider, right? Like I'm just gonna, go, I'm gonna Google Fairview, a, a large healthcare system, just Google Fairview, Southdale Hospital, just randomly. 3.0 stars out of 332 reviews. Let me just Google Alina Health locations here. And their locations are coming up 2.7 stars, 3.7 stars, 3.3 stars. They got 4.8 stars in Edina, which is the rich part of town. No surprise. You know, 3.9 stars. And so I don't, I don't need to keep doing that. You know, you, you can kind of catch my drift here. But to go a little bit deeper, I'm gonna just Google NICE Healthcare again. And I'm gonna just read to you some of the, just maybe one or two of these reviews that these people have left. Let Let me just pull one up for you here. Let me read you this one. This is the best perk I've ever had at any job. The staff are absolutely exemplary. I've never had medical care on this level. Ease of access is an 11 out of 10 And this is someone who's given other reviews on Google. So this isn't the first time they've done it. I've had to deal with a service like this before, and there was no continuity of care. Making appointments was a nightmare, and there was no option of labs or in-home visits. Making appointments with NICE is easy. You get to build a relationship with the medical staff who live up to the name and are extremely NICE. Labs, x-rays, and other services are easy to access, and even prescriptions are sometimes covered and mailed to you with little to no cost. It's just a total and complete game changer. I'm so glad my employer offers this service from a retention perspective. I'm not considering leaving my job. I'm very happy. But if I got an offer or something just popped up, losing access to this service would be a big, giant con, caps on the pros and cons list. And I just picked a random review, guys. I just picked a random review from our Google reviews. I didn't plan this. This wasn't staged. I didn't know you were going to ask me this question. I just Googled the random health systems and clinics in Minnesota to compare them to us. So right there, that demonstrates what Mass Healthcare is doing. It is possible to change the experience. And so you read here, you heard here in this, in this review that I just read, I randomly picked, again, that this person's view of healthcare has completely changed and their expectations have changed, so much so it's affected how they view where they work.
2: I mean, I I just can't get over that, Thompson, and I think about, you know, what Daniel had said about this conditioning that we have with a lot of people in our country, that we have the greatest healthcare system in the world because that's what they've been brought up to believe, and what NICE Healthcare is doing is like changing the lens to which we view healthcare and, and realigning expectations with a newer reality it's almost like an elevation of consciousness and the results you know seem to be over the last few years you're really having good results you have this clinic without walls you're covering all primary care mental health musculoskeletal needs and beyond you know uh, i i was reading up on your company you know and 98 percent of patients rate the care there better than their previous clinic and you're achieving a 453 dollar net yearly savings per employee The company has a 93 net promoter score, you know, 89% of commercial plan members are using the the medical services that nice healthcare provides and you're growing. I mean, it's the company's now in nine States and 18 markets. You're serving hundred thousand members. So, you know, Thompson, I wanted to ask you if you could provide our listeners with more insights on how the model works and how it's able to achieve those types of results. And, and now with the track record that you have, You know, how are you going to be scaling the model into new markets in the next few years?
0: So the way the model works is we said no to insurance. We said no to Medicare. We said no to Medicaid because those things make everything complicated. They make everything expensive. So that's the first thing we did. And then we said, okay, we have to acquire customers at a low price. We can't be spending millions of dollars on Google AdWords and billboards and signs to get customers, because then that just gets passed on to the customers in the form of our prices. So we partnered with innovative, forward-thinking insurance, uh, insurance brokers. So one of the first insurance brokers that partnered with us is USI here in Minnesota. These are, a, this is a forward-looking group at USI. Now they weren't USI at first, it started off with a smaller firm that got acquired, they got acquired, but the individuals at this firm, I know they had the vision to see that their customers who are medium and small businesses, needed access to services like nice health and my partnering with these types of innovative folks we were able to distribute our product at a low price point where we didn't add friction and marketing expense and all these things that would just ultimately drive up the price so that's how we get our product into the hands of consumers is directly to employers who are then p- paying the membership fee for their employees and the membership fee is affordable enough and high value enough that they're willing to pay the whole thing and not make their employees pay it and now all of a sudden their employee doesn't have to spend one two three thousand dollars in their deductible to get everyday care their employee doesn't spend a penny to get the majority of their care so in a way for a very small monthly fee these employers have significantly increased the disposable income for their employees and made getting care easier and more enjoyable via our virtual visits and in-home visits. So that's the next thing. NICE Healthcare doesn't have any physical clinics whatsoever. And what we do is we've combined virtual plus home visits to to replicate and improve on the in-clinic experience. We can do anything a clinic can do labs and tests and x-rays we can look in your ear we can look in your throat we can treat you we deliver prescriptions to your house through our partners and all this without bricks and mortar all this about physical buildings and signage which again add cost to the process of providing this care and that's what's allowed us to keep our price points so incredibly low and then we leverage technology to kind of put the cherry on the ice cream or the frosting on the cake where it enables us to be even more efficient on top of the processes that we've implemented. And so, in summary, we distribute our service to ins- forward-thinking insurance brokers. And then these insurance brokers then present our solution to em- small, medium-sized businesses that are looking for solutions. These employers buy our service on a flat monthly fee per employee. And that fee allows the employee and their entire household to use our entire suite of services as much as they want without any dollars coming out of their pocket without having to think of how much they're using it. And provide the care through a combination of in-home visits and virtual visits?
1: Well, let me ask you another question that's been on my mind since we've been diving into this conversation. And you know value-based care and is often tied to this idea of population health, right? When you think about population health, all these value-based payment models, are really intent on improving health outcomes for a population. You know, organizations and providers are taking risks. They're becoming accountable for populations, and that means that they've and the the whole thing with when we're talking about simple this is definitely not simple but you think about the attribution models and the benchmarking and how they they prove that they're um, that they're improving outcomes and reducing costs but even identifying who the population is and and anticipating what their needs are and understanding if you're going to be successful in the model that you're that you're evaluating or that you're actually performing in and you're trying to predict whether you're going to be successful in that performance year. Organizations spend so much money on their predictive analytics, on their analytics to understand what's happening <laughs> with their patients. They're putting so much work into things like um, annual wellness visits and, and crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's, getting all their risk adjustment uh, measures completed and, and and accounted for. I'm, I'm just curious how you know, population health must look and feel a little different for nice healthcare. And I'm really interested in how you guys are still proactive. You're using data to inform decisions. I I assume or imagine you're still anticipating population health needs and, and you're doing proactive outreach. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what population health looks like for nice healthcare. Yeah. You
0: know, I'm, I'm a statistician and economist, you know, My career started off after I completed my master's degree in statistics. Um, Then I got an MBA shortly after that, which is a health economist. And I've built incredible models, predictive models. I've done efficacy studies. You know, I've evaluated programs. You know, I've done everything under the sun as a health economist and a statistician. I know healthcare data better than most people. And I can definitively tell you that Population health, value-based care, has nothing to do with data. It has nothing to do with algorithms. It has nothing to do with rows and columns and software and dashboards. It has nothing to do with that. There's only two things you need to do population health and value-based care. And let's define success. Success for whatever program or name or acronym you want to use is lower costs and better outcomes. At least the same outcomes. Because let's be honest, if you ask anybody in, say, say Africa, you know, or say Asia, you know, or, or or anywhere, if you ask them, "Hey, do you want to get care in the United States or somewhere else?" They'll say, "I'll take the United States care." So quality in this country is just fine, and I view the quality discussion as a real affront. You know, it's a deflection to talking about the real issues that are happening. If we really wanted to change health, not health care, if we really wanted to change health in this country, we would be focusing more on our food industry. We'd be focused more on our education system. We'd be focused more on um, the way we police and justice. Like those are the things that could change health. No care. There? That's, that's how you change health. So for me, the sole purpose of value-based care and population health management, the sole purpose is to improve the experience and to lower the cost, which incidentally would actually improve the quality and the outcomes. And you don't need data to do that. All you need is to provide access to primary care or everyday care at at a lower unit price. You have to make everyday care Let's define that as primary care, mental health, and physical therapy, drug, um, basic drugs and x-rays and labs. You make that accessible. You create a relationship between a clinician, a primary care clinician, and a patient. You make that happen seamlessly and easily and affordably. That is how you do population care. That's how you do, pop- that's how you do value-based care. And the results of that will be lower costs, assuming that you're doing that at a lower unit price. And if you're doing it at a lower unit price and you're affecting downstream care, someone in the healthcare ecosystem should be seeing their revenue dry up. Going back to that original analogy, that $6 million a minute better be slowing down to five to four to three to two to one. If that's not happening, then you're not doing value-based care. If someone's not going bankrupt, if someone's not going out of business, if someone's shareholder value is not tanking, you're not doing value-based care. And it could be your value or it could be someone else's. But if it's not happening, then it's not happening. It's not real. So, you don't need data to do any of that, period. You don't, you don't, need, you don't need claims data to understand if, if the share value of some healthcare incumbent is going down. You don't need data to understand whether the discretionary income of American households is going up. You, you don't need it. You don't need a statistician to do that. That's just a simple uh, analysis you know, that you could probably do on Google. So again, I'm very anti this whole, this rhetoric around, we need data and models and software and tools and platforms to manage, you know, populations and diabetes care. No, you don't. What you need, all you need is a seamless relationship with primary care that is easy and continuous that's provided at a lower price point.
2: Well, Thompson, you know, as we wrap up our conversation today, you know, I'm just thinking about our, our listeners, you know, we have some of the most sophisticated and expert, you know, people in industry from entrepreneurs and, and physicians and other clinicians and uh, leaders of, of industry. And, you know, you, you've said some pretty provocative things. I mean, you've made me think critically and, in, in, you know, go into spaces that I haven't even, you know, considered in terms of like industry transformation. And I just wanted to ask you as we kind of finish up today, what would be like the one golden nugget, the key takeaway, you know, if, if you're if you're, you know, someone out there trying to make the change and you're you're disillusioned, you know, how can the individual leader make a difference to to really make our American health healthcare system better?
0: Yeah. If if you're an innovator in healthcare, ask yourself the hard question. If you're successful, is someone else in the healthcare system going to go out of business? Are they going to go bankrupt Is shareholder value going to tank? Like, are, are patients getting more access, you know, to your care? Or are you focused on trying to reduce intensity as a deflection? Are you focused on quality as a deflection? Ask yourself as an innovator, what's really ailing the healthcare system? You know, be honest with yourself you know and and besides i'm not saying that you shouldn't do something that doesn't make money or doesn't achieve your goal that's that's perfectly acceptable i'm just saying if you're going to call yourself an innovator let's be honest about that you know about what it takes and what it means to be a healthcare innovator and then to the incumbents to the leaders and executives at the incumbent firms in the healthcare system like let's just be honest you know like i'm not angry that you want to make money I'm not angry that you want to make profit and you want to grow shareholder value. You want to enrich yourself and your comrades. You know, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. It's a free country. What I have a problem with is lies. What I have a problem with is confusticating people, you know, with these terms and these analogies and these ideas that you're actually doing something that's making a difference. Yet your salary is increasing at the same rate as healthcare inflation while the rest of the, com- the country stagnates and suffers and squalor, you know, trying to live off of the scraps that you're leaving behind. You know, and if you're in the government, the federal government, take a hard look at how revenue flows and let's decide already to change policy in a way that benefits everybody. Because right now, the way things are working, the way we're funding Medicare at, on, on the backs of hardworking American families, particularly the middle class, Eventually, we're going to have a major problem, and we all know prevention is better than intervention. So that's my message to those three groups, innovators, incumbent leaders, and the government.
2: Well, Thompson, thanks again for joining us this week in the Race to Value. I, I just commend you for your entrepreneurial vision and and your just brutal honesty about how we really need to disrupt and, and ultimately change. And throw out some of the conventional economic principles that have been, you know, driving this uh, systemic dysfunction in our industry. Uh, you're doing uh, yeoman's work, and and really, you know, creating a, a better care ecosystem for the patients that you serve.
0: Thank you, thank you. It was an honor to be able to share my views and ideas.